This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And uh, we're here to talk about film with y'all. What's happening, Danielle? And eh, not much. I'm just deep in my autumn, my autumnal sweater phase, just sweating in some sweaters. Sweating in sweaters, baby. I've been yeah. there. Uh, there's nothing like I wear them roomy. So some every once in a while, I'll just feel like a trickle of sweat running down my arm and I just <laughs> lift up my arm and let the knit pattern do what it will to catch it (laughs) yeah you know not to uh always bring conversation back to vanderpump rules but there i've been re-watching the entire series basically and i noticed that jacks wears a lot of sweaters in the summertime in la yeah and i was always like that's a weird choice for him but then I was like, I feel you because I love a sweater, and sometimes it's like not cold enough necessarily to wear a sweater, but you just you feel a little bit of it in the air. You're like, bring it, right? Exactly. As soon as there's a little crispness, I'm like, all right, sweaters on. I know. And so I would be watching these episodes where he'd be wearing these like chunky knit cardigans, and then you could just see that kind of condensation around his forehead and cheeks, and I'm like, I feel you, dude. Like, I feel you. I rewatched all of Vanderpump a couple of months ago, and he he had that sheen of sweat that wasn't helped by the sweaters, but I think was probably caused by cocaine or something. <laughs> or all of his fucking pills and potions and muscle shit. Like, he, his body is not right. Let's just say that. His body, yeah. the chemistry of his body is struggling to function. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure the sweater did not help his coke sweats whatsoever. <laughs> um, but I just have normal people sweats. I don't have coke sweats. I just okay. have dirt bag sweats. <laughs> that that's good. Well, it's yeah. It's <laughs> autumn around here too, and the leaves are falling. And because of this, I wanted to dip into the mailbag this week because nice. we got this incredible FMK. That I just have to share with you and everybody. Go for it. Okay, so um, this is an email that we got from Heather from Texas. She, her pronouns. Here it goes. Love the pod. Thank you for reigniting my love of film. The recent Roommate from Hell episode got me thinking about how much I loved the Shallow Grave soundtrack, which led me down a nostalgia rabbit hole of 90s soundtracks that featured dialogue from their movie and then 90s soundtracks in general. Naturally, this spawned an FMK. Millie and Danielle, I challenge you to an FMK of 90s movie soundtracks. And there's... Three rounds and then a bonus round. So technically four rounds of this FMK. And I got to say, 
this is going to be fun. I can't wait to hear your choices. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Round one. Round one. Dialogue mashups. You've got FMK, the Lost Highway soundtrack, the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, and the Shallow Grave soundtrack. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to fuck the Shallow Grave soundtrack. Ooh. Because it's very rave culture, 90s, mixed with some weird old 50s songs. Like, it's just, it's perfectly 90s in a way that really hits me in my heart. So I will fuck it. I'll marry the Lost Highway soundtrack because it could possibly be something I could occasionally write to. Like, I could keep it in the background. And, okay. But I don't want to de- I don't want to engage with it directly too much. So I will marry it so I could just kind of keep it in the background and not creep myself out nonstop. Okay. <laughs> like if, we know like that the, about you. You don't want any, any drama. No drama. Mary. No drums. But yeah. also, like, I can't. I can't engage with it directly, but it's like a keep your enemies closer kind of feeling with the Lost Highway soundtrack. Got it. And I'm killing Pulp Fiction because it was just ubiquitous in the 90s in a way that ruined my appreciation for any music that happened in that film. Uh Uh-huh. So it's got to fucking go. If I never hear the Pulp Fiction soundtrack again, I'm fine with it. (laughs) So that's why I'm killing it. A total hard fall from the the grace of when it first came out. I totally understand. Okay, my answers are, this is the way that I'm going to play it this time and for this for this episode. I'm going to imagine the soundtracks are a person, essentially. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. And I'm going to cast my judgment from there. So <laughs> here we go. For me, I am going to definitely fuck the Lost Highway soundtrack. <laughs> just because, I mean... There's like Trent Reznor on that thing. Like it's <laughs> it seems very industrial. <laughs> and I mean, you either have to fuck or kill that soundtrack. <laughs> or marry it. Hello. <laughs> well, you marrying it is very interesting to me, as I just <laughs> as I just said, because I'm just like, wow. Marrying the Lost Highway soundtrack would be, I don't even know what that would be like. Maybe you I'm would therapy. be like the only lovers left alive. Like you and the soundtrack are like old vampires living ah! in a warehouse or something. Just walking around, shuffling past each other with our robes, fucking brushing once in a while. It's like when you see those like old goth couples that are yeah. like still goth in their 60s and you're just like, damn, that's fucking, that's you and the Lost Highway soundtrack. But so, you're going to fuck it and so you're going to have a, a be- much better experience or worse, yeah. but you won't have to hang around and with it forever. Oh, yeah. That's a great fucking time. Maybe a great weekend. Let's just say that. I will marry the Shallow Grave soundtrack because I do love Nina Simone. I love that Nina Simone song. Yes. Shallow Grave seems like a kind of uh, intellectual choice out of the three. And I don't know. I can imagine living with the Shallow Grave soundtrack forever. A, a professorial soundtrack. Yes. And then, of course, we're killing Pulp Fiction because of everything you just said. Just, <laughs> it is worn out its welcome in my house. I mean, oh, what is that um, Chuck Berry song that, like, they used to uh, play? 
They used to actually play that when I would go out to nightclubs during the in the nineties. They would play that fucking "Say la vie, say the yo, folks." It goes. I was like, "Why are we doing this? This is." My grandma wouldn't even dance to that shit. <laughs> like what? I'm like, okay, we were just listening to New Order, and then all of a sudden we're dancing to this old fucking song because of Pulp Fiction, and I'm like, this is too jarring. I can't, I can't handle it. We so. finally, we finally get the origin story of how you became a DJ, though. Where you're like, fuck this, and you just take one arm and wipe every record off of the table and just take over. <laughs> Yo, I, I was never pulling those kind of tricks. P.S. <laughs> I was never, I would never stoop that low, is all I'm saying. So I'm, I'm glad we're both killing the Pulp Fiction, Fiction soundtrack, because if, if that was not the case, I would have to do some real soul, soul searching. I know, I feel very connected to you in this moment. Okay, so that's round one. Round two... Oh, it's getting dirty. Round two, 90s bangers. Fuck, Mary kill. The single soundtrack, the Romeo plus Juliet soundtrack, and the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack. <laughs> Heather, you are demented in the best way. I fucking love these rounds so much. <laughs> I have a question for you before we even answer. And you can just say yes or no, doesn't have to, but have you even heard the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack? Because we know you haven't seen it. Uh, I feel like I have probably just riding around in other people's fucking cars. Okay, so, solid. Yeah. Solid. I mean, I definitely know at least one song on it, right? That Cardigan song. Yeah. So. Which is why I am killing Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Listen, this is going to be real easy. I'm fucking singles. I'm marrying, waiting to exhale. I'm killing Romeo and Juliet. Singles was like my fucking lifeblood for yes. so long. All these bands that I fucking loved. Don't fuck with Mother Love Bone. Don't fuck with Mother Love Bone. Don't fuck with an early sound garden. You can't <gasps> oh fuck God, with don't it. Don't even get me started. <laughs> that was like the cornerstone of my goddamn personality in life when that movie came out. I'm going to marry Waiting to Exhale because I love jamming to those songs in the grocery store. Yep. It's just like a comfort listen. Every song, you're just like, yep. Whitney, shoop, shoop, shoopin'. Oh, shoop. Come shoop, on. Shoop, shoop, doop. Like, fine. It's in my heart. It's like, again, part of the scaffolding. So I will marry <laughs> Waiting to Exhale. And Romeo and Juliet, that cardigan song alone Goodbye. And I don't even hate the movie and I don't even hate the soundtrack. I just, in this vein of Pulp Fiction, if I never hear it again, I'm fine. Yeah. Y'all played out, played it out too much. Wore out the welcome. <sighs> Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, we have the exact same answers. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Exact same answers. Pretty much the same reasons, I have to say. I mean, here's, here's something I want to drop to you right now, Danielle, about killing the Romeo plus Juliet soundtrack. <laughs> Do you remember the Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen song? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> it's like... Unfortunately, yes. They did dirty with that soundtrack because the movie is actually better than the soundtrack indicates. Well, and to, before all of y'all get crazy... I think that 
that track particularly was on like the re-release of the soundtrack because at some yes. point they re-released it and they added a few they add like a few tracks and one of them was that fucking Boz Lerman Everybody's Free to Resunshine which I don't understand that song was so popular yeah. like it, they used to play it on the radio and I'm like what is this <laughs> Spoken a word. Song, a song with a message about sunscreen. Like the 90s, we had shit going on. The ozone layer was depleted. <laughs> like there was shit going on. I understand the sunscreen bent, but mm. like politically we had some shit. Like it was just, it was a very strange song. Yeah. I I was not a fan, I have to say. But I so that's why I'm killing. And then the single soundtrack as the F, I mean, absolutely a hundred percent. I mean You gotta. Just based on the Alice in Chains song alone, that uh, is a good time. That is sheets. my go. That is one of my go to bring the house down karaoke songs because absolutely nobody expects a six foot tall black woman to have the same vocal range as Lane Staley. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to say it right now. That night would be filled with like that kind of wild at heart esque lovemaking with ah! like the hard pumps. The passionate hard pumps. That's like you and the single soundtrack. 100%. (laughs) Whereas I feel like you'd be romancing the single soundtrack. It would be like (laughs) lovemaking. (laughs) Lovemaking. True lovemaking. This fucking state of love and trust would come on and you'd be like in your reverie. (laughs) Well, listen, I'm so glad that we're perfectly aligned on that round because, again, I would question a lot about our friendship if that (laughs) were the case. Okay, so we've got round three. This is actually great. Um, (laughs) Round three. (laughs) Mixtape Masters. Fuck, Mary Kill. The Rushmore soundtrack. The Reservoir Dog soundtrack. And the Train Spotting soundtrack. Okay. This This is actually I thought it was going to be difficult but it's probably easier than I thought it would be. I am going to fuck the Rushmore soundtrack. Mm. We got a lot of Cat Stevens, we have a lot of autumnal vibes. Uh-huh. I could get down with it. That would be my love making fuck. <laughs> Not the <laughs> helicopter in a well fuck or the, like, fucking throw them up in there like a pizza fuck. That'd be my, like, <laughs> love-making fuck. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to marry train spotting because I got down to that soundtrack so fucking hard in the 90s, it's not even funny. Yes. Like, again, every song, every beat, every note, I know what's coming next. From song to song, I just, I loved that soundtrack so much. I haven't listened to it in a long time, but I would I would marry it. I would marry yes. it. I could live with it forever, put it that way. And look, Tarantino's fucking 0 for 2. I'm killing Reservoir Dogs because, again, y'all got too into this, like, 50s updated hipster shit. And you took some really good songs and drove them into the ground for me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like some fucking great. It's not the fault of the soundtrack. It's the fault of the culture. Like, Absolutely. there are some great songs on there. Some real, like, dirty 70s, like, I really love. But y'all, culture killed it. I can't, if I never hear it again, it's fine. Because now every time I hear songs from that soundtrack, I think of the movie. It's no longer tied to the experience of music. 
Yeah. Reservoir Dogs no, gotta go. That is absolutely true. I, I actually, be, I blame myself for that, for, for that, because I'm like, I was too eager of a young person that wanted to be around old music that yeah. I allowed myself to get over enchanted by that soundtrack and by all of his soundtracks, to be honest. Yeah. So I think now you may know at least one of mine. So I, I am going to fuck the train spotting soundtrack because come nice. on, like lust for life by Iggy pop is such a fucking banger. Uh, I don't even know what else to say. Like it starts what and a, it doesn't stop. It just keeps fucking building up. Oh, it is so such a great song. So, it puts me in this it, incredible mood every time I hear it. Best song to play as a DJ, by the way. I mean, if you want to nice. get back down to that, it's a great club song. And also the other one of the other songs on the soundtrack that I think is really great is that Sleeper cover of Blondie's Atomic. I mean, that song yes. is fucking great. Oh my god, they did such a good job with that song. Also, even just the 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 what's that like um like that club banger that's like dun 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 <laughs> Look I at my just, face, I'm like I just, I just, just look up the name of it, Jesus Christ. That made no <laughs> sense. That was just a series of fucking sounds. <laughs> I was like, is that Gary Glitter? What are you what are you singing? <laughs> It's all the fucking, it's like the main song in Train Spotting. They use it behind, like they play it when um, he's walking away with the bag of money. Oh, yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler. Spoiler. Oh, it's a fucking movie, man. Born Slippy by Underworld. Yes, that's that right. That's song. right. You know what I'm talking Yeah, yeah, yeah. That song is fucking tight. Yeah. Yeah. That is <laughs> impossible to recreate clearly, but tight. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's what I mean. This, that soundtrack is a thrilling roll in the hay. And Absolutely. I will, I will always call it late at night when I'm <laughs> feeling frisky. Okay. Um, I am going to marry the Rushmore soundtrack. I'm, I love the Rushmore soundtrack. It is perfect. Again, like you said, perfect for the fall. It's like this kind of back to school feeling of the, like the blazers and the, you know, private school vibes. I, I love it so much. And I just love, like, I listen to that soundtrack still to this day. So it is, we are bonded for life. We will be together forever. Um, and then, yes, definitely fucking murdering <laughs> the Reservoir Dog soundtrack. Like, <laughs> Raise your hand if you've been personally victimized by Quentin Tarantino soundtracks in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I blame myself. I was too eager. I was like, and I think about it, like, had I had been a fully grown adult when I heard that Little Green Bag song, maybe I wouldn't have played it so much and maybe I wouldn't have burnt myself out on that shit. But... It's just the way the cookie crumbled, unfortunately. So we're killing the fuck out of this soundtrack, both oh, you and I. I'm so glad that we are mostly even keeled on that and definitely <laughs> that we agree on killing 
killing Tarantino soundtracks. He just ain't got it. He ain't got it for, for that shit. I he know. goes too, too much. Yes, I totally agree. So now we have the bonus round. <laughs> this one. <laughs> I don't even know what to say because this is fucking personal. The bonus <laughs> round is called Millie's Nightmares. <laughs> And we got Again, a- Heather. <laughs> fucking great. I love you for this. I love you for this. Yeah, she put me on the barbecue with this one for sure. So, oh, fuck Mary Kill, the Titanic soundtrack, the Empire Records soundtrack, and the Forest Gump soundtrack. <laughs> it's so gross. It's so gross. Oh my god. Oh my god, it's so gross. I Absolutely love this. Um, I, I, <laughs> I out the gate. I'm gonna shock all y'all. I'm fucking Empire Records. Ooh, ooh! It's a play. Okay. It's a. We work at a coffee shop and we're getting down on some bags of beans. It's a mistake that you will regret for months or years after. But it's fun. It's fun. Okay. I'll fuck okay. it. I'll fuck it because I don't want to marry it and I definitely have a better kill. I'm marrying Titanic. Wow. Wow. I will marry Titanic. Now okay. I know you've never seen the film. Okay. It's a little schmaltzy, but I'm not killing Celine Dion. I am not going to be the one <laughs> to drop that bitch in the ocean like a diamond. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I'll marry it. I'm not going to be nice to it. It'll be a horrible relationship (laughs) that I will only pay attention to once every decade. But I ain't killing Celine Dion. I'm going to marry it. I am killing Forrest Gump. Because you kind of have to. Everyone's parents ruined that soundtrack. Like that boomer boomer soundtrack, (laughs) no matter how many great songs are on it, it conjures up images of... Entire families on a beach with a white shirt and a khaki. Yeah. It's conjuring up, uh, my dad thinks this is cool in a car (laughs) ride. (laughs) It's conjuring a lot of polo shirts on a golf Mm. course. I'm killing Forrest Gump soundtrack. Yeah. Like, the Forrest Gump soundtrack is like the extremely corny version of a Tarantino soundtrack. It's like the... Absolutely. Time life... Hits of the 60s shit. It's pretty bad. And I say this having seen the movie about 25 times, so. No, it's it's now here this for oldies. We can't. <laughs> oh, like, what's so, that, um, what's that, that series where a bunch of kids record popular Kids songs? bop? Is that what yeah. you're telling me? It's like a kids bop. Oh, 100%. It's a kids bop for adults. Yeah. <laughs> broke my brain with that um i cannot wait for your fucking answers because this is your nightmare round well guess what bitch (laughs) we got the same exact answers again (laughs) okay i first of all the thing about the empire record soundtrack yes it has my least favorite gin blossom song on it but 
it has probably one of the greatest songs, the Edwin Collins tune, uh, A Girl Like You. I never met a girl like you before. Which is kind of, I have to say, I know I get raked over the fucking coals every time I talk about Empire Records, but I have to say, that song is too good for that movie. I'm just saying. Absolutely. Like, that should have been in a fucking James Bond movie or something. I don't know if it actually yeah. was, but it should have I, been. I, I agree so emphatically that it turned me into a monster for a second there. (laughs) (laughs) That's our too good. (laughs) (laughs) You're like toxic avengering over there. Um, So that's that's a again a fun night, a fun a fun little Netflix and chill hang with the Empire Records soundtrack, and then of course I will marry the Titanic soundtrack for the exact same reason. Thank you. You don't want to kill Celine Dion. Absolutely not. And I'm one of these people that likes her sort of irony-free, by the way. Like, I pretty much like her earnestly. I think she's very talented. I think she's got, like, great hand gestures. And and as of this recording, I think she's unblemished in terms of her politics or whatever, but I'm just yes. saying. I and like she's, she makes, she's, she has fun with herself. Yes. And she, without denigrating her talent, she absolutely will make fun of herself in pop culture. I love it. Yeah. And she's got that like unbridled passion about things that is like, yes, you know, like a very earnest passion about her life that I'm just like, yes, we should all strive to be that. Earnestly passionate. So we are marrying the Titanic soundtrack. And then, of course, we are point blank shooting the Forrest Gump double fucking CDs, by the way. (laughs) Did you remember that? Yes. Two discs (laughs) filled with adults, kids, bops. We are taking this double CD out to a paddock, like the peaky fucking blinders, and shooting it in the back of the head. Oh my god. And I yeah, I I'm with you. I just couldn't. It's just too boomer nostalgia for me. I mean, you know, like it, it was it's a time life commercial in a nutshell and they got to die. So that is it. Heather uh, nailed it. She really nailed it. She knocked this out of the park. That was so much fun. Thank you, Heather. Yes, thank you. Okay. Speaking of knocking it out of the park. (laughs) You came up with this week's theme and you got to tell the people what's going on. Okay. So (laughs) we might have to go back into the vaults for this one because this, the name of this theme is called runners, jumpers, and amblers. And this was something that I feel like we came up with, like, last year. We had this discussion about horror movie villains and their gait, if you will, or their, like, (laughs) their... uh, Their body. Their choreography or something. (laughs) Like... I think it was, like, could we get away from them? Yes. Or in what situation would you be able to get away from them? Yes, exactly. And we kind of ironed out a few, 
Like, we figured that, I think Freddy Krueger was a runner, because he seemed fast. <laughs> Maybe jumpers would be like a kind of leprechaun. <laughs> Maybe Bilal from <laughs> Basket Case. Oh, Bilal like a, like a, is a jumper. Yeah. That bitch is jumping out of that basket with a ferocity that is unparalleled. Yeah. What are the, like, a whole, like any kind of horror movie villain that just, like, surprises you? <laughs> Comes out of a place, you know? And then amblers are like the kind of cumbersome, large, like, leather face from Texas Chainsaw types. Like, <laughs> not exactly a runner. Kind of just an ambler. <laughs> they <laughs> yell came up with an ambler. <laughs> they just kind of appear where they're like, they are not in a rush to kill you because they know they're going to get you. So they just kind of <laughs> mosey. They mo- they're moziers. I actually, they're moziers. I, I dated a guy named Ambler when I lived in um, Alaska. What? Alaska. Yeah. First of all, that tracks. Yeah. And it's also the name of a town in Alaska. So A-M-B. L-E-R. Wow. That's fascinating. He was a gorgeous. Was he yeah, an he was actual really Ambler? Who would he be in this spectrum? Actually, yeah, he was kind of an Ambler, like a hippie type. Like I a real. See. He was cute. I should look him up. He's probably married with 19 kids by now, but like he was very, (laughs) a very nice man who I was too young to see the virtues of, but I've always loved his name and Ambler always cracks me up as emotion. Listen, Ambler, if you're out there ambling around the dog park or wherever, listen to podcasts and you're hearing this right now, I saw what you did, pod at (laughs) gmail.com. Leave us a voice memo. Leave us a voice memo. Leave us a voice memo. We we worked at a bookstore together. He was so cute. Um, But yeah, Amblers. And look, we both chose Amblers this week. Or I think. I think we both chose Amblers. Yeah. A little Ambler. Maybe a a, a 60-40 split between Jumper and Ambler for me. (laughs) We'll see. I don't know. We'll have to work out that math when the time comes. Yours spends 90% of the movie standing up. True. That's an ambler. But there is a moment of my film where it's like, aha! <laughs> so well, this is an important distinction. Are we talking about uh, are the general movements of the character or the action that they take when they're killing? Same. Yeah, that's hard to say. I mean, I feel like we should be speaking of them cumulatively, perhaps. Yeah. Killing and not killing. Where does that line get drawn, though? Well, because also, in both of our cases and in a lot of horror films, they source out the killing to other entities. That's true. So we can get into it when we talk, because I'm going to go first We will definitely get into it. We thought that this would be a great theme for Halloween. Obviously, Halloween is right right around the corner. So enjoy. I think we're going to have a good time. Um, And you're going first this week. Oh, we have such a good double feature right now. So this, my pick for Runners, Jumpers, and Amblers was released in 1992. It was written written and directed by Bernard Rose based on a short story called The Forbidden by Clive Barker. My movie is Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? Yes. Candyman. (laughs) Sweet talking candy man. 
Candyman. <laughs> I think that would be so much better if he appeared and just started singing in like some Louis Armstrong style bop. <laughs> Like swinging a cane around in a circle. Candyman. <laughs> I know you're, as of this recording, still technically striking. But the minute it's over, you have to write that sequel. The upbeat Candyman. <laughs> upbeat. Upbeat Candyman. Can that still, be the name of the episode? He oh. kills, you, kills, you with, <laughs> kills you with kindness and canes. Like he's swinging the cane around singing and he just stabs you in the fucking heart. Candyman. <laughs> gotcha. Also, I have to, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the actress Casey Lemons is in both of our fucking movies yes. completely unprecedented. We didn't choose it that way. We didn't choose it yep. because of her, but I was so happy to see her in both. There's actually two connection points between our movies that we both didn't realize, at least I didn't. A, that Casey Lemons is in both, and B, that these are both movies about female students who are solving <gasps> murders, essentially. Yes. Trying to solve murders. Oh, shit. Crazy. Sometimes so. we surprise ourselves. Sometimes we're subconsciously smarter than we are yeah. out, in, in, in an outward fashion. Agreed. I love that. I love that about us. Yes. Got secret knowledge. Um. I fucking love this movie, and I'm just going to give you my one-sentence synopsis so we can just get right into it. An exhausted academic has her life rocked while studying a, a Chicago urban legend. Definitely rocked. You did a great job. Rocked. The music is by our boy Philip Glass, PG. Mm-hmm. So it adds an eerie lens to it. I kind of love the way the movie... The movie uses a lot of overhead shots, which back in the 90s meant helicopters, but they're so fluid and beautiful that you would think they were made by a drone, by a modern-day drone. Um, Dude, but yeah, I, I love... love the Candyman soundtrack. It's so uh, goth as fuck. Yes. Love True so goth. Much. True goth. Now, first of all, this cast is great. You've got Virginia Madsen playing our primary character, Helen Lyle. She is the student that I was just discussing. Um, and Tony Todd plays the Candyman. When I tell you this man came out of nowhere to scare the shit out of us, I had never heard of Tony Todd before. When I saw this movie in 1992, I was like, I don't ever want to see him again. Yeah. I don't want to see him as in a fucking Annie reboot. Like, this man is terrifying. Yo, I had an absolute 100% like core memory scare when he started talking. Because I yeah. that was the one thing that I remembered about Candyman so much that scared the fucking shit out of me when I was a kid was that, like, they must have turned up the low end or something on the voice. They made it extra deep and rumbly. Oh. And, like, and I was like, why are they doing that? That's so <laughs> creepy. <laughs> that voice. And again, he's a beautiful actor, beautiful person. Oh. But he, Hot. that is the the way to cast a horror film is to make sure your your titular character is an unknown. So the terror is real because you don't have any, you don't have any kind memories to go back on and be like, oh, I remember him when he was in Puss in Boots. Like, you don't have that. <laughs> so if he appears scary, he's just going to be, they're just going to be scary. Yep. You're like, I don't know where this motherfucker comes from. He could be a real life killer. Like, we don't know. <laughs> 
Uh, and then you've got some other, like Xander Berkeley plays Helen's husband, Trevor. Um, our girl, Casey Lemons, plays her sidekick in this movie, just like she plays a sidekick in the second movie. She's the number two. Um, she's also a student uh, that is working on this project with Helen Lyle. And uh, Vanessa Williams, the actor Vanessa Williams, who plays Anne-Marie McCoy, who's somebody who lives in this building that they go to. Ted Raimi makes a fucking guest appearance. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just a really great cast. And I just need you, I just need to say right off the bat that the, the I cannot get past this point, and I didn't remember it from watching the movie. This bitch is a doctoral student who is studying superstitions and urban legends. And she's not the only one. Because again, Bernadette is right there with her. And that says all you need to say know about academics. You can go to school for 12 years and pay $100,000 to study urban legends. <laughs> and there's something I love about it, and there's something I hate about it. Oh, and, but, and also, by the way, the the thing that really like struck me this time was how much she smoked. Oh in this my movie. god! They... And smoked in school, which in I was like, school. could you smoke in college in the nineties? I do not recall that. I do not recall that. I visited lots of people in college, and then I went to college, and I do not recall being able to smoke anywhere on a campus. Yeah, she was straight up smoking in a classroom, interviewing students. Yeah, freshmen. <laughs> oh, smoking and flirting with college freshmen. <laughs> like in the first five minutes of the film. You're like, That's oh that my higher God. ed shit. I'm like, what in the world? This is another planet. Like, all of it. Absolutely not planet Earth. And <laughs> my second question, or my second point, is that we do eventually find out the answer. But I can't stand the fact that Candyman is filled with bees and not candy. <laughs> I can't take it. They give us a reason. They do give us a reason. But the Candyman name doesn't make any fucking sense. He could be like, he could have been the original Slender Man. He could have been like the, the Tall Terror. There are so many other names he could have been given. And Candyman also indicates that he only targets children, which is not true. Like, there's just something real fucked up about the moniker to me. Well, okay, yeah, you're exactly right about that. Well, first of all, I have a, a few questions for you. N number one, what kind of candy would come Thank out you. of his body? I feel like the Candyman would be filled with, oh, God, what are those old black and yellow honey candies. Bitto honey? Is that what it's called? honey. The fucking God candy man will be filled with bitto honey or candy necklaces. Oh, yeah. Like actual necklaces? Yeah, like, can't, like those candy necklaces that you can chew on all day. Like he opens up his <laughs> chest and it's just like, pew, candy necklaces explode out of him like fireworks. Because <laughs> I feel like a candy necklace wouldn't stick to his blood and guts and yeah. ribs. I got to be honest, I was thinking historically, I was thinking he's a historical character. He's yeah. got to have like a like maybe there's Werther's original coming out of his mouth. Oh, that would track. 
you know, something for, like something old school. Uh, and then my other choice was maybe blow pops just because I love blow pops so much. <laughs> I love blow pops. Oh, but now I'm in, now that I'm thinking about it, Werther's original is perfect because they're gold. So when they fly out of his mouth, it would just be like a waterfall of gold. <laughs> and you'd be so mesmerized, you'd forget to be scared for a second. And then he'd fucking rip your life apart with his hook hand. Oh, it would. I would be underneath his mouth. I love Werther's original, by the way. That fucking shit is delicious. I'd be under his mouth, like I'm. I just won the jackpot in Vegas, and I'm collecting coins. I'd be like, put those Werthers right here, baby. I love that shit. But his mouth, hands open. I can't. But to your original point. I totally agree. I don't understand the Candyman name and everyone's going to come after us because they're going to point out something obvious that we're not understanding about it. <laughs> but just on the surface, if there's bees coming out of his mouth, call him the Honey Man or the Bee Guy. Or <laughs> call him the fucking like, Stinger. Call him the Stinger. The Stinger. Yeah, seeming like a wrestler, an 80s wrestler. Uh, also, now that I'm thinking about it, I would also settle for Lemonheads shooting out of him. Oh, yeah. Because if lemon heads, not in the package, just loose lemon heads are rolling out of him, that's a two for one. You get candy, he gets to dis- dismantle you and disassemble your whole approach because you'll be slipping on lemon heads like fucking ball bearings. Exactly. Exactly. But I don't <laughs> like it. Bearings. I don't like this candy man name. He is way too scary. He could have a much scarier name. It doesn't fit with his killing, it doesn't fit with anything. So basically, we start the movie with the candy man talking and he talks in a low whisper that is terrifying and he's like I'm gonna spray you from your grind to your gullet <laughs> you're like yo can you pick up the pace or increase the volume like what is happening so you just come into this movie confused cause he's like I'm gonna split you from your grind to your gullet and you're like that is scary yes that is a scary sentence but I'm passing out already I'm, I'm tired yeah. He, makes, he's, he could be called the sleeper. He puts you to fucking sleep with his talking. Oh, yeah. There's some, I'm telling you, there's some low end, rumbly ASMR thing <laughs> happening with the Candyman voice. I guarantee somebody has made a YouTube video with the Candyman voice and like an ASMR. They're like rubbing a fucking coconut or something with the Yo. Candyman playing in the background. Let, let's get down to brass tacks. If there's not a Candyman sleep story on the Calm app, Preach. In two weeks, I'm going to be protesting. So I'll, I'll give up my Killian Murphy calm uh, for that. I'll listen to it one night. See see what it does to the dreams and the sleep pattern. They'll be, I'll, I'll check my fucking Apple Watch and it'll be like, technically you were asleep, but you did not rest at all. <laughs> there was no <laughs> periods of rest because the fucking Candyman was like, and then in 19... 19- 21, I saw a motor vehicle for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so this man, we, we jump into the movie with the superstition. But the way that superstition, like the way that urban legends work, the first story we hear is not the full story and it's not the right story. So we're hearing it from the perspective of one of the students and they're explaining what the Candyman is. And it's basically a guy with a hook jammed in the stump of his sawn-off right hand. You say his name five times in the mirror, and he appears behind you. And here's my other primary question. Why would you want him to? He's got a hook for a hand and a stump. 
If he appears behind you, he's not going to, like, sing you a lullaby. Why would you want to say his name five times and be killed, potentially? Well, and I—this is a question I have for you. I have, perhaps, for the writers of the film. I don't know. So, my thing about saying his name five times is that if you say it the fifth time, I just assumed—I mean, a lot of it was that he pops up like Beetlejuice. You say the name, and then here comes— the jumper. Here come, he comes jumping out of his dimension or wherever he comes from. But then there were times in the movie where you would say it, but then there would be like a long time before he showed up. So I'm like, exactly. how does that work? So if, if you're like at a sleepover, you say the name Candyman five times, and then like two and a half, three weeks later, he shows up. That's just unreasonable to me. <laughs> You're like, like you either gas. show up instantly or not at all. <laughs> I fully agree. I can't be in the grocery store. Then the candy man is just like, Hey bitch. I'm like, <laughs> remember a couple months ago <laughs> when you said my name five times? <laughs> like, where have you been though? You're like, candy man, I'm at work. Can you come back? Like, fuck. That was ages ago. I'm taking out my guard. Like, what? I'm mowing the lawn. Like, don't. Because he also comes. He'll come at daytime, nighttime. There's no particular yes. time of day that he'll show up. I don't like the fact that he could just be, like, popping up a month or two later. And you're like, I am on vacation. Can you go yeah. away? Can you imagine just, like, lounging out? Like, you're on a fucking beach in a chair reading a book. And then he's like, pops out of the sand. And he's like, I heard you wanted to speak to me. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, fucking three months ago. Yeah. Now I'm relaxed. It's 10.30 in, in the morning, which is the least scary time of day. Why are you here this morning? I'm not even scared. I'm annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> like, get out of here, Candyman. Come back Gosh. at a reasonable haunting hour. <laughs> <laughs> fucking weirdo. So we find out some of the superstitions from you know, this urban legend just from talking to the students. And, how, you know, he killed a babysitter and there was somebody who got away, but his hair turned white. And that's how we know the story. So as Bernadette and Helen are smoking and talking to these students, they decide to, you know, we kind of learn about them and what they're doing and their project. And, you know, Helen goes to this class where her husband is also a professor and he's kind of taking her shine, which is how you know that Trevor ain't shit right away because she wanted him to wait until he finished her, until she finished her thesis about urban legends before teaching about it. But he's teaching about it right now. So I hate him right away from an academic standpoint because he's a fucking thief. But he's also clearly flirting with this student of his and she picks up on it right away, and she's like, yo, what the fuck's that all about? And he's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, no, no, no. He's like, oh, she must be in love with me. And I'm like, mm, you don't get to joke about that as the person of power in that room. Oh, and your and wife like, is Virginia Madsen, so get a fucking grip. I know. I was like, Helen is too hot for you, Trevor. Ugh. Like, she's too smart and too hot, and you're a gross professor, like— Speaking of Werther's originals, he's wearing some high-waisted corduroy belted pants. <laughs> like, are you fucking serious, dude? Some high-water corduroy pants you're coming out with like, oh, don't be worried. Oh, God, he's disgusting. We, we hate worst. Trevor throughout the film. But then we also get to see Helen working late into the night. And this is where we get a little more, little more information about Candyman because she meets this janitress. 
who also knows the Candyman tale. We get a little bit more of the background because um, she, you know, was talking about how this woman got killed in Cabrini Green because, again, this takes place in Chicago. Um, and she's like, I've got a friend who knows a little bit more about it. And Helen says, oh, can I talk to her? And she says, yeah. And then she goes out into the hallway and is like, yo. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I didn't expect your friend to be like right there. But this other woman comes in and she's like, yeah, like he killed some lady in a fucking tub. And I, I like, I'm, I don't know anything about that. But Ruthie Green was killed in Cabrini Green, which I think is one of just a great rhyme. <laughs> and now it's time for the microfiche, which is my favorite aspect of any 90s film. So Helen's looking it up and she's looking at Ruthie's death. So Ruthie lived in the projects and Helen realizes that her building has the same layout as Ruthie's building and her bathroom mirror, you can push out the back of it, take it off the hinges, push out the back of it and you're in somebody else's apartment. Wow. So she comes over and shows Bernadette and she's like, look, Ruthie was probably killed by someone who came in through her mirror from this other apartment. So they're kind of trying to debunk the urban legend as they're investigating it. They also dare themselves to say Candyman five times in the mirror. And Helen doesn't give a shit. She's like, I'll say it. But Bernadette's like, I ain't saying that last one. I don't think so. But this is where Millie's point comes in because they say it and then we don't actually see Candyman until like 40 minutes later, which in <laughs> the timing of this film is like a month later. It's... <laughs> And when he shows up, he doesn't kill her. He's like, you're supposed to be with me. And she's like, what? <laughs> like, so we'll get to that. But she says it five times in the mirror. And then as she's sleeping at night, Trevor comes home blasted and like leaps on her like a fucking freak. I don't know. <laughs> this scene was so weird. Like he doesn't just stumble into bed and like pass out. He literally jumps on her like Gollum. I don't get it. But Trevor, yeah, we don't Trevor's like a jumper, I think. Trevor is a jumper. He's a jump. He's an, a, a jumper in the body of an ambler. Yes. <laughs> he's got the pants of an ambler. The pants, those ambling pants. I can't. So Bernadette and, and Helen go to Cabrini Green. to They want to see Ruthie's apartment up close and personal. And Bernadette is fucking strapped. She's got a stun gun. She's got mace. She's got everything. There's a line in this scene that I really love, though, is when, when Helen says, we're, we're going to examine how an entire community attributes the daily horrors of their lives to an urban legend. So from her academic standpoint, a lot of urban legends are stem from the fact that there's just too much pain in some people's day-to-day -day life, and this is a way of explaining it. So she goes in there acting like a hard ass for no fucking reason. She's like walking past all these dudes and she's like, I'm not the cops. I'm just here to do. And I'm like, you are you are a student. Like you're an academic. You're a researcher. Calm down. Just calm down. But also, I think it's cool that the ethics of field research are really on display here because she's taking picture of graffiti and like just flat out going into Ruthie's apartment, which is open and unlocked and abandoned. But the layout is the same as her apartment. So she's like, all right, I'm going through this mirror. And she goes through the mirror and into this apartment. And as she's crawling through a hole in one of the walls, the camera pulls back and there is a terrifying image of graffiti of the Candyman. And she's like crawling through his open mouth. And then she sees a pile of candy with razors inside, which I'm like, let's not mix up the urban legends. 
Let's not just conflate the urban legends. <laughs> very, very confused by that part, I have to Ugh. admit. <laughs> Good Lord. Because he doesn't have candy coming out of him anywhere. He, if he, based on what we're going to eventually learn about him next, he wasn't even alive at a point where this kind of candy existed. Like wrapped <laughs> up candy. They, they used to have candy in like open barrels and penny candy and shit. He never even saw candy in a wrapper. Yeah, he was probably eating divinity or whatever the fuck. <laughs> like meringue, soft meringues. He was, he's like, let me have one of them lime whippets. <laughs> like it was back in the day when candy was just a stick. It's like we, we figured out a way to put sugar into stick form. <laughs> Here you go. Even before lollipops, before they even started rolling the stick up. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's a pot of candy with razors inside, which I don't love. But this is also how we get to meet Anne-Marie. And Anne-Marie comes out with her dog, this ferocious dog, and she's in the hallway and she starts talking to them. And Vanessa Williams is a wonderful actor, but I have to say, she's doing the craziest fucking accent I've ever heard in this film. It's a mix between, like, Southern, urban, like, gone with the wind. Like, I don't know what this accent is, but it does not read to me as Chicago. (laughs) Yeah. At all. But she's telling the story of Ruthie and how she heard Ruthie being killed and she called 911 and nobody came to her rescue. And then we get a little bit more of the legend because we meet this little kid and like this little kid named Jake. Um, But Anne-Marie has a baby. She's a single mom. She's living here. She's just trying to live her life. And her her baby's name is Anthony. um, And he's very cute. And she's just like, I'm just trying to get by. So... Peace out. So what we eventually learn at this weird dinner with Helen, Bernadette, Trevor, and a a couple of other academics, like an academic who who looks like a thumb, essentially. (laughs) She's sitting next to the penguin from Batman. It's Danny DeVito's penguin. (laughs) Who's like in in competition with Helen. So Helen's a student. He's like a tenured professor. And he's like, ha you're not going to beat me on the Candyman front. Let me tell you what I know about this motherfucker. Basically, the real story of of Candyman is that he was the son of a slave. He grew up with polite society because his dad made up some invention that made them rich. He was an artist and he first appeared in the late 1800s. But he made the fatal mistake of getting a white girl pregnant and... In retribution, they sawed off his right hand, I'm guessing so that he couldn't do art anymore. They covered him in honey and let bees sting him to death, and then they burned his body. So again, if we're approaching the origin story of Candyman, we've got fire. They burnt him up. Why couldn't he have been Fireman? Why couldn't he have been fucking Skin Man or something? (laughs) If we're going to put the bees in there, why aren't the bees on him all the time? And he could be the stinger, and he's just constantly crawling with bees. Like, there's just so many things here that I felt like they could have gone to, and Candyman just doesn't ring true to me with all this other shit going, all this other horror about the way he died, which is usually the origin story of most villains Yeah, in a horror movie. The way you die is kind of how you get your name or how you, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway... I didn't. I don't love the story, but it's better than like, oh yeah, this guy just shows up with a fucking hook for a hand. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, seems to be a lot of different ideas going on. Is what I I feel like is 
we need some to cohesion for some of this. Yeah, we need some cohesion. And also, do not write to me about the updated Candyman. I have not seen it. Um, and if they explain it better in that film, great. But I don't need. We're t- we're talking about the OG right now. So, eventually, I guess in death, he becomes this fucking horror villain who grabs the nearest thing, which is a hook, and he like hammers it into his hand because there are all these nails sticking out, like these rusty nails sticking out around the hook. So I also don't understand the mechanics of like, well, if you're sticking it in your stump, wouldn't your flesh just grow around it? Like Swamp Thing style? You got (laughs) to nail it into place, which feels complicated. It'd be like a dental implant. Like the the bone just forms around the hook. (laughs) Exactly. Like does it, does your body not just naturally do the work of forming around? I don't, I don't know. There are people who have gotten shot with BBs and they still have a BB in their hand because your your body just forms around it. So I don't understand why his body didn't form around this fucking hook. But right. Anyway, so he's wearing like these fucking gingham pants and a fucking long ass coat with a fur collar. And when we eventually see him, which is still not now, we're still 40 minutes into the film and haven't seen him. So Helen meets this little kid named Jake, and she, he's like, I'll show you where the fucking Candyman is. And then he goes and tells her this story that when I first saw this movie, this is the part of the movie that I remembered the most, and it scared the shit out of me. Jake tells her this story of this little boy who went to go use this public restroom across the street from a grocery store mm. and basically had his dick ripped off and thrown in a toilet. And they're like, the Candyman did it. And again, I'm like, the Candyman doesn't have any cohesion. Why is he ripping off dicks? Like, how do you go from bees and honey and candy and ripping off dicks? And, like, his whole thing is that he will basically put his hook in you and just, I guess, pull up. So he's, Yeah. But he ripped off this little kid's dick, essentially. And it's a terrifying scene, and I hate it. <laughs> oh. So gross. This entire public restroom is covered in, like, people were, were using poop to write on the walls of this public. Well, I mean, this is how disgusting this place is. Oh, because Helen goes into the bathroom after, after she hears the story. She's like, cool, I'll go in. And it's literally like, I'm like, how long, how long did it take or what kind of seismic bodily event had to happen for someone to write out sweets for the sweet in actual solid shit? Like, the sweets is huge on a wall, and then for the sweet is tiny on a stall. But it is all in solid shit. It looks like clay, like clay on the wall. Rough. Was it like a community event where they're like, I got the W today? Like, what is happening in this bathroom? Good Lord. (laughs) It's a fucking disgusting bathroom. But she's in it, and she's taking pictures and doing her whole thing and, like, thinking she's fucking hot shit. And there's a toilet full of bees and, like... Basically, this guy comes in and he's kind of dressed in the long coat with the hook and he's carrying a hook. He's not jump jamming in his hand. He's just carrying a hook. And she gets beat up, basically. And then she goes to the cops and they think that the guy who beat her up also killed Ruthie and the little boy in the bathroom who died because he used to lead this gang. And Jake is like at the station with no parents, P.S. And he's just freaked out. He's like, yo, you just fucking brought the Candyman into my life and I'm not happy about this. So... It's like a month later when we actually meet the Candyman. And I'm not even exaggerating. Because this is we like s- a boogin' situation. Why did we wait so long? <laughs> Completely. 
Because she, when she gets beat up, her eye is really like fucked up and swollen. And when we see her again, it's she's healed. And it's like a month later. <laughs> and then the Candyman shows up in a parking garage, which is the least scary place in the middle of the day. In the, the daytime, exactly, exactly. Like, I'm not scared. I'm annoyed. I'm like, I, I'm trying to get to my car. But he also does this thing with his voice where he, like, entrances her or mesmerizes her somehow. So he starts talking and her eyes start, like, flickering and she's, like, having flashes and shit. But he basically is like, hey, it's me, Candyman, you called. And uh, here's some bees coming out of my mouth. And you're going to wake up in <laughs> Anne-Marie's apartment. And you're, and he, she's like, what? And she's all flickering and freaking out. And that's basically it. Like, he shows up and it's just like, you're mine. I'm not going to explain what that means. Here's a mouthful of bees. And let's go into a little trance. So when she wakes up in Anne-Marie's apartment, she's covered in blood. And the dog's head has been decapitated next to her. Damn. And Anthony, the baby, is gone. So she wakes up and Anne-Marie is screaming. And I'm like... Okay, Anne-Marie comes at her. She's like, you fucking took my baby and killed my dog. And they fight. And the cops come and Helen gets arrested. And this is just the beginning of Helen's, Helen's nightmare. Because this is what's also fucked up about Candyman. The Candyman set her up for murder. Yep. Like, what is this man's ultimate goal? He's like... I'm not going to appear behind you with a hook and just kill you. I'm going to set you up for murder. Yeah. And that's not the first time he does it. <laughs> or the last, that's not the last time he does it. Because she gets bailed out by Trevor, who was not home at 3 a.m., by the way. Mm. And she finally starts looking mm. at the negatives of all the films she took. And she sees the Candyman standing behind her at one point, And then his hook comes through the mirror at her house. And... He's kind of ask. He's kind of like asking her to be his victim. Victim. He's like, "Do you believe in me? Can you be my victim?" And I'm like, "Why is he asking this bitch for permission? Just what is happening?" Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then he's <laughs> then he finally is like, "Can can you at least come and get this baby? <laughs> can you at least <laughs> bare mins? Can you come get this baby?" <laughs> I don't know what to feed him. <laughs> I'm, I only have bees. <laughs> yeah, he's like, bear man's come get this baby. And he shows, he shows her where Anthony is. Anthony's still alive in some rubble somewhere. Ugh. So basically, there's more killing to come because Bernadette comes by with some flowers and the Candyman kills her and frames Helen again. Oh, and then yeah. she's arrested and he's like floating over her and whispering. Again, I don't even understand the dynamics of his body movements. Like, how is he able to float? Nobody cares. Nobody explains. Yep. He's like in her mind, I guess. So he's like, she's, I don't know. It's not explained. But he frames her for murder again. And then they keep knocking her out in this hospital. Like she's in this kind of psych ward version of the hospital. And she wakes up again a month later. <laughs> and she's been charged with first degree murder. So she kills the doctor, she basically escapes. Like, she kills a doctor, she knocks out a nurse, she climbs out a window. She's fucking escapes. 
and goes, and I'm not going to ruin the end of the movie, but she does meet up with Candyman again. But basically, he shows up like twice, and he's standing still and ambling. He's an ambler for sure. He either is standing completely still, or he just appears behind you, which I guess could be a jumper. But since he doesn't, he just doesn't make any sudden movements very often. He only makes a sudden movement like once. And he floats once, which is and he floats not even once. an option for this theme. <laughs> Which we have to assume is part of the ambling because there's not even an option for a floater. A floater is usually a ghost. What the fuck is going on? Is he a ghost? And if you're a ghost, there are rules. You're not corporeal. You can't grab people. You can't You can't grab people. If you're a ghost, you're like an apparition. Mm. So yeah. End of the movie is fucking wild. It has one of the wildest... Scenes I've, I've, I could, I, I mean, I wish I could tell you, but there are people who have not seen the original Candyman and I want them to. But let's mm-hmm. just say Virginia Madsen is doing the most in one of her final scenes. <laughs> and she ends up looking like that fucking doll from Rugrats. <laughs> Cynthia, was that its name? Yeah. She crawls out of something looking like a Cynthia doll. And it's fucking wild, but... For all that I've said, I actually love this movie. It's so yeah. creepy and weird and and horrible and awful and scary and truly terrifying. And he's an ambler. He's one of my favorite amblers. Yeah. that That is also my take of seeing this again. I'm like, it doesn't make a lick of sense <laughs> normally, but like, I still love it. I still think it's very enjoyable. And I don't, I think it has a lot to do, quite honestly, with like, the score. I think the score yes. really is like one of those scores that just really sets up everything in this dramatic way. And then at the end of it, you're like, I don't really know if I followed what happened just now, but damn, was it creepy as shit. Bear men's come get this baby. <laughs> well, and also too, like I could not help but think there were times where the dialogue was extremely Clive Barker. Yes. <laughs> And I was like, this is some Victorian goth vampire shit. Absolutely. And this is based on a story that he wrote, and he was an executive producer on the film. So yeah, his handprints were all over it. Yeah. But confusing. I will say this was a confusing mythology. (laughs) But I'm glad that we established that Candyman is an ambler, because I would agree with you. Absolutely. With his Werther's coming out of his mouth and his... (laughs) fucking strange outfit. Listen, he's, he's an ambler. And yours so, is also, I can't wait to get into. Yeah. Because I'm so glad we watched these two back to back. I watched them as a true double feature and I could not sleep. Oh, I I did it to myself again. Yeah. I am to blame because I, first of all, I couldn't watch the movie or any of the supplements or documentaries that I watched at night. I had to watch them during the day, 1030 in the morning. The least scary time of day. Absolutely. And I will say, I did I did a little bit extra research this time just because I know that there's some a couple of things about this movie that we're going to get into. But my film for the theme, Runners, Jumplers, and Amblers, is a movie from 1991. Uh, the screenplay is by Ted Talley, based on the book The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris, directed by Jonathan Demme. It's called Silence of the Lambs. Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. Your boy JD. Ugh, we're back with another JD. So we we have talked about this 
this now it's a franchise really of films and TV shows. We know that you're very keen about one of the scenes in the television show Hannibal. <laughs> it's pinned on my Instagram. Just go check it out. <laughs> It makes me laugh that it makes you laugh so much. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I I think it's so funny that you are amused by that scene. It just says a lot about you, and I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say I've not seen the TV show Hannibal. Um, I haven't seen Red Dragon in a long time. Mm-hmm. I just recently saw Manhunter not too long ago. But I've seen Silence of the Lambs a few times recently. So, um, but I now I'm going, I think I'm going to go through it all. Like, I'm going to do yeah. the whole set. Again. I just did that last month, and I highly yeah. recommend. Highly yeah. recommend. It's it's a great Saturday afternoon. Yeah. And I've never read the book, The Silence of the Lambs. So I want to do that, actually, because just uh, just because we're going to talk a little bit about the movie and I and I kind of would just like to compare it ultimately. But so yeah. Silas of the Lambs was follow up to Thomas Harris's first book, Red Dragon. When they decided that they wanted to make the film adaptation of this, apparently Gene Hackman was first involved, and he was actually set up to both act and direct the oh. film at one point. Wow. I think he was going to play. I, I think I read that he was going to play the Jack Crawford character or something like that. But he was also going to direct this movie. But I think he eventually passed on it, and then, obviously, Jonathan Demme was brought in to direct it. And, you know, I, of course, if you listen to a few episodes back when we talked about Caged Heat, I I went on and on about him, so I'm not going to duplicate that info. But I would say that this is Jonathan Demme's most famous movie. It's probably the one that he's known for, obviously, the most. And I also feel like it's kind of hard to overstate how influential this movie is oh. in our popular culture for ver- for various reasons. I mean, I bet a lot of people who are listening right now have either seen it at some point in their life, especially if you're in a true crime, I think. It's, it's like one of those films that I think a lot of true crime aficionados like. And it's definitely one of the most famous, it's kind of a hybrid movie, like a horror crime thriller type of thing. So a one-sentence synopsis of Silence of the Lambs, a female FBI trainee who is tasked with tracking down a notorious murderer and mutilator of women, seeks the expertise of a famous psychologist turned cannibalistic serial killer. Damn. It's a lot. That's good. There's a lot going on. So I want to say this. I tracked down this really great making of documentary. It was called Inside the Labyrinth, The Making of Silence of the Lambs. Oh, And it was made in 2001 by this filmmaker named Jeffrey Schwartz, who directed a lot of documentaries. He did the documentary on Tab Hunter, on Divine. And I want to say that this was, I don't know where this initially aired. I don't know if this was a part of a supplement or something on a DVD or something. But I had had to find it on YouTube. It's It's on YouTube in three parts. So... I think if you just look it up, you'll be able to find it if you want to check it out because it's actually really informative. And there was a lot of interviews um, in that that were really interesting to me and kind of put the film into more context for me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they talked about at the very beginning is that, you know, this movie was part, I think, of this growing American fascination with serial killers that 
was sort of kicked off, really, in a major way in the 60s. Um, which I think, of course, now that has obviously continued so much. And the, to this day, I think serial killers are still a fascination for people. And I think because Thomas Harris is a right, was a writer and he used to be a journalist, I mean, there's obvious ties to many actual serial killers in this film, you know, like Ed Gein and Ted Bundy and Gary Heidnick and, and those types of folks. But I feel like when this movie came out, I think it really did bring serial killers into the mainstream, into mainstream entertainment, right? Because the thing about Silence of the Lambs is that it was both commercially successful and critically acclaimed, right? It was the third film to win Oscars in all the major five categories. So Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress, Jodie Foster, and then Best Adapted Screenplay. And I think to this day is the only movie categorized as a horror film to win Best Picture. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because that doesn't happen very often in the Oscars, obviously. Yeah. Um, And I'll just say this. I think as a person who studies and thinks about film on a cultural level, I feel like Silence of the Lambs is just a really rich text. There's a lot of topics going on in this film. There's violence towards women, gender identity, class, feminism, body image, policing. And there is definitely no shortage of analysis about all those things. So if you want to go down that road, it's very interesting stuff. But I will give you a basic outline of the story, and then we can come back around and sort of talk about a couple things that I find really fascinating about Silence of the Lambs. So the movie is essentially about a young woman named Clarice Starling, who is obviously played by Jodie Foster. She's originally from West Virginia. She, as a child, lost both of her parents. Her father was a police officer who died in the light of duty, and apparently this was a very formative moment for her as a child. And the movie begins with Clarice at the FBI Academy, where she is immediately given this unusual assignment by her superior, Jack Crawford, who is played by Scott Glenn from Urban Cowboy, the villain from Urban Cowboy, as you know. (laughs) Who's so perfect in this role. He's like so gentle and, and yeah, I I get a really good vibe from him in this role. Yeah, he's definitely the opposite of, of the role that he played in Urban Cowboy, which is he was wearing like a mesh shirt and he was <laughs> a psycho. Essentially, he's he's definitely not that. But he tells her that that he ne- that she needs to go visit one of the most notorious criminals to ever live. And it's Hannibal the Cannibal Elector. And that is essentially the villain of the film, I would say. I I think he's an ambler. To be honest, (laughs) like I think and I think it's only because he's incarcerated that he's an ambler. Yeah. And maybe at one point is a walker, but not a runner, (laughs) I would say. (laughs) And also maybe a jumper. Like, I think it's honestly like a split. I think it's an 80 percent to 20 percent. You got to pick one. God bless. I hate when you (laughs) tell me the rules. Um, Okay, then he's then he's a majority ambler. (laughs) With, like, moments of jumping. Maybe once. Uh, like, like in the Candyman float scenario, he is a jumper once. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. Okay. And, we, and there's also another 
villain in the film who I think is a runner. Okay. Jame Gum. Yes. Well, we're going to definitely talk about Jame Gum for okay. sure. I actually think there's probably a third villain, which is the the head of the the hospital. Yes. That yes. smug piece of shit. I would I I think he's actually yeah, I think he's a villain. I'm going to call him a villain and because of that, I would say he is a fucking ambler. <laughs> 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 Who's the guy that plays him again? Um Oh, uh Healed with his name Anthony Healed. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Frederick Chilton, a fucking ambler for life. Okay. So let's talk about Hannibal, right? Because so he's a former psychiatrist. He's very smart, very cultured, and also incredibly dangerous. Like, even in maximum security, he is not to be fucked with. Like, Clarice is told, and this is what I think is so brilliant about this movie, is that it builds all this tension by, because you are in the Clarice mindset. You're you're like, what are we doing at this moment, I'm this, like, young FBI upstart, and now I'm being taken to, like, the bottom floor of this terrifying institution where it, it's, like, a jail under six feet of rock. Also, and somebody, like, throws cum at her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is not a pleasant place to visit. Yes, and you're, and you're just going, like, holy shit, can this be real? She's told pretty much straight up, like, be careful because Hannibal is really cunning. He's a former psychiatrist, so he's going to get in your head and he's going to mind game you to death, basically. Mm -hmm. And she thinks that she's there to drop off this questionnaire for him. Like, that's like, I think is so funny is this idea that she was like, oh, this all this whole thing started because I was dropping off a questionnaire. (laughs) There was no other way to get this to him. It had to be me in person. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go down to, you know, the middle of the earth, the earth's core, to visit this guy that's literally behind, like, 10 feet of plexiglass with, like, hamster holes drilled in it. And then everything <laughs> that I give him is through a slot. Like, oh, I no. just go give him a questionnaire. But that's the thing. So she's so she's down there. And at the same time, she's kind of assessing him. He's sizing her up. She's assessing him, obviously. And realizes that she's able to maybe ask this guy some questions about this current serial killer that the FBI is trying to catch, who is named James Gum, nickname Buffalo Bill. And... Bill has been ritually kidnapping young women who are plus-sized, I have to say, killing them and using the skins and has yet to be captured, right? So Clarice, I think, at some point after subsequent visits with Hannibal, realizes that she can establish some level of trust with him. And then she sets up this kind of quid pro quo scenario where... He asks her to tell him about her childhood, and then in exchange, he's going to give her tips about how to capture Buffalo Bill. 
So that's the kind of dual storyline thing happening in the film, which is that, you know, there's Clarissa's relationship with Hannibal, and then there's the casework of trying to track down Buffalo Bill. And then the title of the film comes from this incident from Clarissa's childhood, where uh, after her parents died, she was sent to live on a farm in Montana or somewhere um, with some relatives. And she witnessed or heard these lambs screaming while they were being slaughtered on the farm. And it kicked in this instinct to save them, which I think becomes this metaphor for her mission of joining the FBI and trying to prevent this like horrific violence happening to these young women, right? So that's essentially the story. And the thing that stands out to me, I think the most about Silence of the Lambs is this running theme about Clarice being a female in this very Mm -hmm. male world of the FBI, right? Because all throughout the film, there are instances where Clarice is being ignored or treated differently because she's a woman. And if you heard that episode that we did about Caged Heat, I talked about how the director, Jonathan Demme, has this, you know, general interest in female protagonists in his films. And he's actually really good at getting us as viewers to sort of understand them deeply, which is, I think, why... The Clarice character is is obviously my favorite in this film. I think he does a really exceptional job at getting us to be in her shoes, essentially. And then I started thinking about it because I was like, I mean, I saw this movie in the early 90s when I was very young. Don't ask me why that happened. (laughs) Same, and it was just the way it was. I saw it when I was like... (laughs) Like well, 11, have, 12. <laughs> you have a chronic excuse, which is that your family loves horror. Absolutely. And what always puts you in front of crazy ass fucking horror movies. <laughs> your grandma, particularly. I don't know how I saw it, to be honest. I have no mm. idea. I think I was just ambling myself. <laughs> ambling through the video store or something. I don't know how I saw this movie so young. At a friend's house or something, just ambling yeah. along through life. Might have been. Um, but I, I would say that, like, at the time that I saw this movie, I don't think there was a lot of police or FBI stories from the female perspective before this film. Nope. Absolutely I mean, not. I, I always think about this movie and maybe The X-Files as the first time that I even really understood that FBI agents could be female. Yeah. And it was kind of a revelation. I mean, I kind of thought it was you know, between Clarice Starling and Agent Dana Scully, I was like, this is great. Like, these are good, like, characters that I can sink my teeth into. It's amazing. Yeah. Sink my teeth into, no pun intended. But anyway, there's one scene in this movie that I feel like is so indicative, right, of this sort of, like, gendered imbalance between Clarice and the rest of the agents. And it's that one in the funeral home where... Agent Crawford pulls the sheriff chief or whoever aside and is like, hey, we're not supposed to be talking about sexual matters in front of the lady. So they end up going into another room without her. And then the shot of her standing in the middle of a circle with like all these like sheriff guys around her and Jonathan Demme shoots it from this high angle. So it makes her look really small. And I just feel like that's such a great filmmaking choice. So Um, smart. And just sort of, like, makes it clear that she, like, struggles for legitimacy in the agency, right? 
And he also does it pretty a, a pretty similar thing too at the beginning of the film when she's you know obviously the, the opening sequence is her running through the woods and then she runs to the office building and she gets in the elevator and then she you know opens the elevator and then she stands there with like all these like bigger men sort of towering over her. Yeah. Um, I just think that communicates so much about her character and how she feels, which I think is a great touch. Okay, so another aspect of the film that I feel like we've already alluded to it, is the James Gum Buffalo Bill character. And, I mean, even if you haven't seen this film, you probably know the scene where Buffalo Bill dances to Goodbye Horses. It's, you know, a pretty pivotal scene. A lot of people remember it. And when Silence of the Lambs came out in the early 90s, there were several protests from the LGBTQ community and the feminist community to be honest, about a lot of aspects of the film, I mean, the violence towards women, obviously. Also feeling, though, very strongly that the Buffalo Bill character was problematic. And especially when you think of the early 90s as being this really important era for gay rights and the AIDS crisis, they felt that this character was not helping to change the sort of negative stereotypes of that, like, gay trans villain trope that had been a crutch in Hollywood movies for a really long time. And it's interesting because I saw this movie as a child, and then I saw this movie many times as an adult. And from a modern lens, I feel like there might be some different messages about this Bill character, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly within the movie itself, But then also in reading and watching old interviews with people who were involved with making this film. So when I saw the Inside the Labyrinth documentary, the actor Ted Levine, who plays Buffalo Bill, said that he did not play that character as a gay man. And that he was actually very aware of the movie cliches when it came to the gay villain trope. And he actually saw... Buffalo Bill as a cisgendered, straight homophobe. Mm. Which is very interesting, obviously. It is interesting, yeah. And there was an article that I read in the New York Times from February 1993 interviewing Jonathan Demme, the director, who also said that he believed that Buffalo Bill was essentially a self-loathing straight man, that he was not gay or trans. Well, there's a line in the film, too, where Hannibal says that, where he's like, mm-hmm. you know, he's he thinks he's he's trans, but he's not. He just hates himself and doesn't know what to do with that energy or some, something to that effect, where he does say, he, I think Debbie probably was smart to include that in the film to say, yeah. we're not going to diagnose him. He just, he hates himself more than he hates women. Yeah. Then, so you have that in the film, actually. You have sort of the perspectives, the later perspectives of Jonathan Demme and Ted Levine, the actor. Um, But then there's all this coding in the film, you know, that is in that's very interesting. And maybe is it makes it kind of less clear about what's actually happening with this character. And I will say, I mean, as a straight cisgendered woman, I'm not going to I'm going to opt out of deciding who Buffalo Bill yeah. is ultimately, right? I don't want to take away any anyone's read of who this character is to them. 
But I just think generally, I feel like the film seems to not be thinking very deeply about how it presents Buffalo Bill, right? From the things that I've seen and the old interviews with Jonathan Demme and the crew, like the production designer on the on the film, they actually seem sincerely apologetic for people having such a strong negative reaction to the film. And they, and they claim that they were not trying to vilify gay or trans people when they made it. Mm. And then I did see in the interviews in the documentary that, you know, they protested the Oscars that year when the film was up for, you know, the Academy Awards. And Jonathan Demme apparently was very receptive to hearing that criticism, and he understood the complaints and he sympathized. So it's very interesting, very complex, obviously. I also think in 91, I will say, the I would say the mainstream movie going public who were seeing this film they probably did not know much about gender identity and gender expression. I mean, totally. you have to imagine. I mean, like, these are like multiplex folks that are coming to see this movie. I mean, were they picking up these fine points about this Buffalo Bill character? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I, I can't say. I can't say. I, I'm not sure either. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's a good point to make. Well, and 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 again, it's kind of that thing that we wrestle with doing this podcast about film of, of sort of, you know, looking at older films from a modern lens and how, you know, it's just a lot of times you will have different, different opinions about seeing something later as an adult, you know? Um, it happens, it, we wrestle with it all the time. So I don't know. I mean, actually, I look at it now and I see this character as being very complex and I, I think Demi humanizes this character somewhat in the film considering that that character is a serial killer and a killer of women. I will say that when I was a preteen seeing this movie in the early 90s, I was definitely not smart or sophisticated to think about this movie at all on any kind of deep level, other than it being like a terrifying film about cannibals. Honestly, I think that that was the big message, was the cannibal thing. Yeah. I don't really think, I think that's kind of was the main focus for me, was the Hannibal Lecter... I think Hannibal Lecter was terrifying to me as a child. Absolutely. And it's, his, there's something about his countenance. Like Anthony Hopkins was perfect to play this role. Like even when you first meet him and all he's doing is standing up, but he's so rigid and he's wearing this like really high-waisted uh, jumpsuit that makes him look like a teddy bear almost. Like yeah. very, <laughs> like non-threatening physical structure, but then he's the most terrifying person. It's just a really interesting juxtaposition. Well, and, like, Jonathan Demme uses these close-ups constantly throughout the film. And it's of characters who are looking straight into the camera. It It's so unsettling. And, like I said, I was always very <laughs> classically terrified by maximum security institution stuff. <laughs> like, the idea that... I mean, just the mask, which... If you watch the documentary on YouTube, there's a really, like, they talk about the costume designer for the film and how they ch went through the process of choosing that mask. Like, at a certain point, they were looking at fencing masks, and they Oof. and they and you can actually see behind-the-scenes footage of the actor Anthony Hopkins trying on these different masks before they settled on whatever the hockey mask uh, uh, thing. And then, the so the shot of him in the mask... And then just being carted around on that handcart, like Kurt Brawl or talked about. 
<laughs> the handcart. Like they were like, oh, wait, this guy cannot walk. He has to be carted around on like the UPS handcart. Scary <laughs> as shit to me. And it's terrifying. And and honestly, like Sir Anthony Hopkins talking about it in the documentary, saying, you know, he was like, I'm going for a less is more approach when it comes to this character. Like, I don't need to do much to make this shit scary. And he did an amazing job. (laughs) Amazing job. So good. But I want to say, though, before before we end that I read this amazing, smart conversation between two people who I think are some of the best folks writing about film right now, Caden Mark Gardner and Willow Caitlin McClay. They are about to publish a book called Corpses, Fools, and Monsters, an examination of transgender cinema. Uh, Hasn't come out yet. It's about to be. Um, And I'll just post the link uh, to the transcript of their conversation on our socials because I think it was really valuable for me as a cis- cisgendered person to hear about this movie and their insights on the Buffalo Bill character from their perspective. I just have to say, I thought it was a really interesting, smart convo. Um, so I'll post that. But Thank you. That's great. Yeah. I'd love to read it. But yeah, this this like I said, this film is such a rich text. I mean, it does the double duty of being a rich text while also being truly scary jump scares. I mean, the scene towards the end with the like night vision goggles thing. I mean, I feel Mm. like that technique I think has probably been done to death at this point. But at the time that I saw it, I was like, wow, like this is new and creepy. But yeah, like I said, to go back to our theme, I feel like Hannibal is mostly an ambler. And so is Dr. Frederick Chilton. And so is Jane. Is that what you, you said earlier? Buffalo Bill? I think Buffalo Bill's a runner. A runner. Yep. That makes sense. I feel like he's a real runner. But listen, this movie, I think, I I have watched it several times. Like I said, I only watch it during the daytime. But um, it's, it's a fascinating film. Obviously, Demi's most famous and just sort of a famous, you know, canon horror film. It's one of my favorites. I could keep it on in the background all day. I don't know what that says about me, but it's just, (laughs) it's so psychologically interesting. It's so scary. It's so fascinating. It's traverses all of these different, like you said earlier, like all of these different topics of class and gender and identity. And it's just, there's always something new to discover in this film, but it's also just straight up scary. And I think Hannibal Lecter is probably the scariest ambler. Yeah. Oh, definitely. There's only one scene where they actually show how he has killed possibly in the past or how he has done it. And it's fucking shocking and really terrifying. Unbelievable. All I have to say is, I love you, Charles Napier. (laughs) (laughs) A a, a Jonathan Demme standard actor in his his kind of Dreamlanders, like Jonathan Demme's version of the Dreamlanders crew. 
absolutely terrifying. There, I got to say, going back to this documentary I saw in three parts on YouTube, they have a really great discussion about creating that. And I'll just leave it at that. But anyway. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, a move, And I got to say, for you, it tracks that you would keep this on in the background because you, you did say that Chernobyl, the television show, was your comfort watch, so... So I don't know what's wrong it with all me. comes together for me. I, I have to discuss so much in therapy what's wrong with my day-to-day actions that I don't ever get to a point where I can talk to her about what's actually wrong with me that I like like to keep this kind of shit on in the background while I work. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to address it one day, but I haven't gotten to it yet because I'm like, well, I did this dumb thing or I think this dumb shit. And she's yeah. like, Well, fine, we have to spend a couple weeks on that. And then <laughs> I never get to the point where I'm like, also, I watched Chernobyl and Silence of the Lambs nonstop. (laughs) Like the way that most people put on music to cook to, I will put on one of those two. Yeah. Hey, listen, I, to me, it's what I love about you, but you know what? Maybe, (laughs) maybe a professional would think differently. Who knows? You'll get there one day. Today is not the day. (laughs) Today ain't the day. Today I am all about this shit. Yeah. That was a well, fun episode and truly a great double feature for for the upcoming holiday season. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree. I, I I immensely enjoyed watching both. So, listen, if you want to email us, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Of course, send us questions for the bonus episodes. Obviously, they sometimes jump to a main feed episode. Um, we also have a P.O. box if you want to send us handwritten letters and things of that nature. And you can now leave us a voicemail to play on the show. Uh, just record a 60-second voice memo and email it to I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Again, 60 seconds or less, and please record in a quiet space and know that we might play it on air. That's right. Also, find us on our socials. So we are at I saw a pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Ooh. We now have a Blue Sky account. Nice. So if you're on there, and we are at I Saw a Pod there. And also we have merch. Go to the Exactly Right shop to find it. And uh, go ahead and get our bonus episodes, too. They drop on the, f- the new episodes drop on the uh, feed every third Thursday of the month. And our old bonus episodes come out every once in a while, every couple of weeks on a Wednesday. Yeah, that's right. Well, listen, we don't have an episode next week, but Danielle... You want to tell them the movies for the week after? Yeah. <laughs> Our movies for next week are Amelie from 2001 and Top Hat from 1935. Guess the theme. I have a feeling it will be impossible. But Somebody we'll wrote us a review once that said they were 0 for 100 in <laughs> guessing the theme. <laughs> well, that's ah. because you created the rule that they had to get every word right. I'm sorry, but you got to get into this head and think about (laughs) what would these two folks pick as a theme and not general, not a general theme, like a specific theme. It's fun. I think it's fun. But most people are like, yeah, we ain't getting any of these. (laughs) Well, listen, Danielle, always a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I have to say, I, I love talking to you every week. I'm just extremely thankful for your friendship. Oh, me too. It's my favorite time of the week. Okay, bye. This 
has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien. Episode mixing and theme music by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.